You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident panelist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore data. Well, it's official. Rob Gronkowski has retired again for the second or, I guess, third time, if you include the time he lied to the Lions about retiring. You know, so he wouldn't have to play there. (laughs) Here's the announcement. Tight end Rob Gronkowski announced his retirement. That's definitely not how we expected... Uh, This to end, given how the reports this offseason have gone, until Gronkowski is inevitably pulled out of retirement in Week 13 or whatever. He hangs it up with 9,236 receiving yards, 92 receiving touchdowns, and a dominant 11-season career that should make him an inner circle Hall of Famer. Adam Schefter notes that he received a text from Gronk's agent, Drew Rosenhaus, that said, It would not surprise me if Tom calls him during the season to come back and Rob answers the call. This is just my opinion, but I wouldn't be surprised if Rob comes back during the season or next season. So, pretty classic Gronk retirement, I guess, or, I don't know, anybody's retirement. Gronkowski's retirement opens up space for Cameron Brait in the Tampa Bay passing attack and should also boost the stock of Russell Gage. Quote, I will now be going back into my retirement home, walking away from football again with my head held high, knowing I gave it everything I had, Gronkowski wrote on Instagram. So, relatively big um, news. It's not Packers news, but it is big NFL news, assuming, again, he does stay away. Who knows, for all I know, uh, midseason return could be week two but it is also significant for the Packers because we're talking about Tampa Bay and I know Gronkowski is not necessarily the same Gronkowski that he was you know um, back with New England but he's still Gronk Um, if you look at his 2021 season overall he had a 76 overall grade so the, the guy had 90s his entire career just an absolute dominant freak Starting in 2018, his last year with New England is when things started to fall off. 75, then 70, then 76. He's still hovering in the good range. Still probably better than any tight end the Packers have had. But the thing with Gronk is not that he isn't still dominant, it's that he's inconsistent. If you look at his grades on a game-to-game basis, it's it's usually either dominant or horrible. Um, starting in week 1, 85, 86, 46, 44, 75, 93, 66, 62, 46, 49, 81, 90, 57. So um, he's either awesome or he's terrible. So it's it's really, again, it's not a matter of he doesn't have it anymore. It's a matter of he's not able to do it consistently. I don't know if it's the, you know, aging, injuries, you know, whatever. I don't know. But the point is, he's still a very dangerous person, and he's a guy that I don't want to have to go up against. Because, I mean, as long as he's in the 40s, I don't care, but he spent more time in the 80s and 90s than he did in the 40s, and so I just don't want to mess with that. But again, if we see them when it matters in the playoffs, there's, what, at least a 50% chance Gronk is in that game? Completely rested. So, 
I, how significant this is, I don't know. But if it makes Tampa Bay a little bit worse, I will I will always take that. Speaking of, sounds like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are also losing in Dominican Sue. Again, Sue, and even to a, a much larger degree, is not the man that he was. But I'm not going to pretend that I'm not happy that they're losing another player. You know, this is another team similar to the Saints and the Packers and everybody else that's filled with a bunch of guys that they, well, they just keep trying to run it back. Tampa Bay's doing it a little bit differently. They, they refuse to let go of anybody. Packers obviously don't have an issue with that. But Sue seemingly has fallen completely off a cliff. In fact, he did it as soon as he went to Tampa Bay. Um, in his, well, we know he was dominant with Detroit. In his three years with Miami, he was in the 80s. With LA, he had an 80 overall grade. He goes to Tampa, drops to a 69. Next year, 62. And then this past year, a 52. From what I can see, he had maybe two good games the entire year. And by good, I just mean 70 or higher. Obviously, his best game came in the playoffs. But again, another guy that I just I just don't want him around. And it sounds like he's probably not going to be playing for Tampa this year. Obviously, I don't think that's his choice. He would love to play for a contender and continue to keep going back. But um, he did an interview, and it sounds like he knows that the Buccaneers are not going to bring him back. 35-year-old spoke where he imagines himself playing next year on ESPN Live, whatever, saying it looks like the Bucks are out of the picture. Article goes on to talk about how they signed Akeem Hicks, and it just sounds like they're ready to move on from the 35-year-old that, again, has not really produced for them. There's a possibility he could go to the Raiders, but it was really just an offhand comment that could have meant anything or nothing. Who knows? Point is, he's also leaving uh, Tampa. In other news, uh, Chicago Bears put... Offensive lineman Dakota Dozier on IR uh, because of a leg injury. The report says the Chicago Bears put offensive lineman Dakota Dozier on injured reserve Tuesday after their offseason acquisition suffered a leg injury last week. Dozier, 31, was carted off the field at a June 14th minicamp practice with what appeared to be a left knee injury. Dozier was signed as a free agent in March as he was slated to battle for the starting right guard position. The 2014 fourth-round pick, has played 76 games, 27 starts with the New York Jets from 2014 to 2018, and Minnesota Vikings 2019 to 2021. He started all 16 games with the Vikings in 2020. In a corresponding move, the Bears signed cornerback Jason Stanley. Stanley, 25, is a former undraft, blah, blah, blah. Who cares? Don't care. Maybe we'll care in the future, but I've never even heard of the guy. The point is, and I, I don't know what Bears fans are doing right now in terms of their level of panic or playing this down or whatever, but, I mean, this, this, is, this is bad news for a team that is really struggling with offensive line depth um, as well as just offensive line talent in general. You've got a guy that has been a competent offensive lineman. Dakota Dozier is not terrible, especially when you consider the, the bar that's being set by the Chicago Bears offensive line. It wouldn't have surprised me even a little bit if he ended up being the starting right guard. And so now the uh, presumed offensive guard, I guess, is Sam Mustafer, who we've talked about was uh, center for the Chicago Bears. But now that they have Lucas Patrick from the Packers, the thought is maybe that Patrick will play center. Mustafer will move to guard, but Mustafer was really quite awful. 36th out of 39 centers is where he ranked. Now, Dozier hasn't been super great the last couple years, but he's at least a proven commodity that has been solid in the past. In fact, his first few years were pretty solid. For some reason, he's been drifting downward ever since. But again, it's not even, I mean, again, you can downplay it as far as, well, he was no good anyways. All right, dude, well, (laughs) competition isn't a bad thing. And ultimately, if nothing else, you've got depth issues on top of having just starter issues. So 
uh, more bad news for the Chicago Bears. I do have a pile of statistical things, but I want to kind of wait on that. So I'm going to go through a couple other uh, Packers things that I had, just because, you know, if we happen to spend enough time on it, then I can save these because I'm in um, news hoarding mode, where I try to just gather as much as I possibly can and hope that I don't go through all of it so that I have to restock the pipeline tomorrow. Because <laughs> every day I'm just scared to death that there's just nothing for me to talk about. So I've got a pile of fun little stats here that I'm going to hold off on for one second. Um, I wanted to bring this up. I wasn't actually going to, but I figured it was a good opportunity to get uh, the folks on Patreon involved. Um, Maurice Jones Drew of, I don't know, NFL Network or whatever, wherever it is he talks, he put in his two cents on the Green Bay Packers wide receiver situation. And again, the reason why I didn't really want to bring it up is because these NFL Network analysts and all that, they're kind of the... Try not to be disparaging here, which I know doesn't sound like me, but I'm, I'm really trying. I think they know better. I think they choose not to know better. I think a lot of these NFL Network type people, it's, it's sort of like pop analysis, if that makes sense. It's kind of appealing to the masses, the populace, the, you know. However, he's a former football player, and uh, he had some thoughts on the Packers wide receiver situation. What he said is, when the dust settles, so we'll, we'll give him at least that much credit, because who knows what's going to happen by the end of the season, and that's, that's how I'm going to phrase that. He says that uh, when all the dust settles, Dubs, Dobbs, I, can't, I still can't do it. I still can't get it right. Dobbs will be MVP Aaron Rodgers' second favorite target behind Watson, despite the quarterback's reputation for minimal patience with young pass catchers. So again, the the reason why I don't put a lot of stock in it is because it just feels like an NFL Network answer. What's the most exciting thing you can say? I think these two young guys are going to be the number one and the number two. It's it's also probably on the other side of it. the general media disdain for the Packers wide receivers, right? Lazard and Cobb and, and, and Sammy Watkins are just the worst of the worst, right? So it's a very low bar to get over. So the assumption is just obviously Christian Watson and uh, Romeo Dobbs are, you know, it'll take a little bit of time, but by the, by the time the dust settles, these two guys will, will step up. It's not impossible, but I'm, I'm saying it's pretty close to him. If you told me one of these guys is going to be either a number one or number two, fine. Yeah, totally. But if by the end of the year, and, and believe me, it would be a very good thing if it was true. If by the end of the year, our first two wide receiver picks are our number one and number two receiver, knowing what we know about Lazard and Cobb and the trust factor and the talent factor and the experience factor, that would be probably the best case scenario. But I don't think it's very realistic. And I don't really know if MJD thinks it's very realistic, but he knows it's a very popular slash controversial answer. So it's a good NFL Network answer. However, I did kick it over to Patreon. Interestingly enough, uh, most of the people, not by a massive margin, but most of the people um, do think Christian Watson by the end of the year will be wide receiver one. After that was Lazard, then Sammy Watkins, then Randall Cobb. None for Romeo Dobbs. Which, again, doesn't disagree with MJD, because that would be the number two. But it is kind of nice to see the um, amount of people that are super high on Christian Watson. I think my, I don't want to say my excitement has waned, but I've sort of bought into my own narrative a little bit about, you know, the the veterans are going to get all the snaps, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and, and I've kind of just disregarded, which I shouldn't, sort of just disregarded the idea that any of these rookies, uh, especially 
the wide receivers are going to be massive big impact players in year one. You know, maybe Quay Walker, but he's a number two linebacker. He could be the number one at some point, but he's the number two linebacker. Devontae Wyatt, rotational defensive tackle that probably won't start getting starter snaps until later in the season, if at all. You know, the offensive lineman, maybe, I don't know. But since we're talking about Christian Watson, um, there is something that I saw yesterday that kind of revived that fire within me, at least a little bit. The uh, Monday morning quarterback article is now, what, the Monday afternoon quarterback? I don't know. It's it's now MAQB. I don't know what, what that means. But anyways, he kind of runs through and has some uh, pretty good nuggets in there once in a while. And he had one about Christian Watson. He says, the more I heard about North Dakota State's Christian Watson in the fall, the more it reminded me of what people were saying about Vincent Jackson when he was coming out in 2005. From how raw Watson is, to the size, speed, potential he possesses, to the non-FBS roots, and I'm told he had a real solid spring with the Packers, which only bolsters that thought. He goes on to say, I think he can be a real guy for Aaron Rodgers. The question will be how fast it happens. Now, obviously, that's a fun stat, because most of us remember Vincent Jackson and how dominant of a wide receiver he was for several years for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And you got to understand, we're talking Vincent Jackson, we're talking 6'5", 241, running a 4'4", speed, and, and, you know, granted, things have, you know, times have changed, but um, in comparison, you know, when you're talking speed, Watson's kind of on a whole other level. But still, Vincent Jackson, um, several thousand-yard seasons. You know, he's not Devontae Adams, he's not uh, Julio Jones or anything like that, but, you know, 1,000 yards, 1,200 yards, 7 touchdowns, 1,400 yards, 8 touchdowns, 1,100 yards, 9 touchdowns, 1,200 yards, 9 touchdowns, 1,100 yards, 8 touchdowns. He had a he had a solid career. Grades hovered in the 70s and 80s from, let's say, 2007 to 2015. Now, PFF's grades don't go back to 2005 when he was drafted, so I don't have that information. However, it is also worth noting that um, it took Vincent Jackson a while. He mentioned in the article that... Um, Christian Watson reminds him of Vincent Jackson in every single way, including how raw he is. Well, Vincent Jackson coming out was considered raw, didn't have any um, NFL-level competition in college, and the reality is it took him several years. Now, I'm sure this isn't going to happen for for Christian Watson, but in his rookie season, this is with San Diego, he played in eight games, started zero, targeted eight times, caught three for 59 yards. That was it. Now, maybe that is all we're going to get from Christian Watson. I don't know. That would be extremely disappointing, obviously. But the point is, the stats in every category were terrible. Played half a year, didn't start in any, caught three passes for less than 60 yards, no touchdowns. He averaged 7.4 yards per game. 2006 was an uptick. This is year two, but still played in 16 games, but only started seven. Caught 27 passes for 453 yards and 6 touchdowns in 2007. He played in 16 games, started in 16 games, but still only caught 41 passes for 623 yards. And again, kind of talking Alan Lazard range. In fact, these are Alan Lazard's stats. When I looked at Robert Brooks and said, here's what kind of he went through and then he exploded. It's kind of the same thing. Didn't play very much and then 400 yards and then 600 yards and then boom, 1,000 yards. Same thing happened with Vincent Jackson. So it's, it's... good news and bad news, right? It, depending on how much he is like Vincent Jackson, this could be immediately awesome news because we know that he he 
really went on to blossom, and, and it may just have to do with where he was placed on the roster. If you go back and look at PFF, his grades were never really bad. Um, even in 2006, he had a 70 overall grade. He, he wasn't targeted very much. He wasn't a starter for the team, but he had a 70 overall grade. 2007, um, when he finally had his 900-yard game, he had a 79 overall grade, and he never really was too much higher than that. 80, he did have an 89, then 81, 76, 89, 79, 75, 79, whatever. So he always hovered in that range. So he was basically at peak Vincent Jackson by 2007, although his real big breakout year wasn't until 2008. And again, even to 2006, although technically it's a 69 overall grade, we can call it a 70. Again, the talent is still there. The question is how much is he going to be used or utilized? So again, depending on how you want to take that and what your expectations are, this is either very good or very bad news. He checks all the Vincent Jackson boxes. Vincent Jackson was a great football player. Bing, bang, boom, we got ourselves a great football player. Or, best case scenario, he's Vincent Jackson, and even Vincent Jackson took like three years before he kind of hit his stride. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. I tend, I tended to look at that as more positive because the bigger question for me, although again, of course I want to win this year and I want everything to be great this year, bigger question for me is, is this going to be a good football player or not? And if you're telling me this guy's going to have a Vincent Jackson career, I'm happy with that. He doesn't have to be Devontae Adams. He doesn't have to be Calvin Johnson. Anyways, I feel like this is a good spot to take a little bit of a break. We'll come back, we'll start ripping through some of these stats and see where that takes us. But we'll take a break and we'll be right back. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son, and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
So the first thing I wanted to talk about in terms of our uh, little st statistics second half here, this is by uh, Brandon Carwile of Packers Wire, kind of dug into some um, statistics and some notes about Eric Stokes. The uh, article title, Eric Stokes to be critical piece of the Packers defensive success in 2022. First of all, I, I, I got to say, and honestly, I don't think he really necessarily addresses the point of the, the title as far as why and all that. But just piggybacking off of what I said yesterday and the importance of defense and then the importance of defense kind of coming down to coverage, I think a massive, massive factor here is those three guys, Jair, Stokes, and Razul Douglas, and for, for three different reasons. Jair, it's simply a matter of how close to peak form can you be. That, comes, that, that itself can be split into two parts. Number one, your health, you know, how much is that going to impact you? Second of all, how much was your freakish uh, 2020 season? How much of that was, I don't necessarily want to call it a fluke, but, you know, one of those sort of flash in the pan, had one good year, and then kind of regress a little bit type seasons, is it? That's factor number one. Number two is Razul Douglas. Similar question. How much of last year's success was real and can be replicated? And I think for Razul, it's going to be very difficult. Not, not necessarily that he can't be a good corner, but the fact that a lot of the hype and excitement and all that came from interceptions, and I don't know how replicable that is. But I will absolutely take good corner. But then the other specific issue, assuming he is moving to full-time slot duty, is how can he perform in the slot? How well can he perform in the slot? And then the third factor being Eric Stokes. There's always a possibility of some regression, although you generally don't expect that in year two. It's possible. It happens. It's happened many, many times. But I think the... the bigger, more realistic question is, are we going to see more of the same or are we going to see a significant jump? Because if, if there's, if we're going to the far optimistic side and just saying, what if he's a dominant corner? What if this is a similar to Jair type pick? Even if he doesn't stay up, what if, what if this is his Jair year, his big boom year? And you know, these guys are going to feed off each other. One guy doing his job impacts another guy doing his job. But the answer to those questions across those three guys is going to have such a massive impact on this team. You know, if, if Jair returns to, you know, peak form, if Razul more or less is the same, and if Stokes takes a step, especially a significant step, it's completely lights out. I'm pushing my chips all the way in on the Packers. If Stokes doesn't really improve and just kind of stays, you know, decent, Jair kind of goes back to being good but not elite. And Razul is sort of a subpar, but not devastating slot corner, then, you know, I'll throw in a chip, but I'm kind of bluffing. Anyways, um, here are a couple of little tidbits that he mentioned about Eric Stokes. He says he started 14 out of 16 games, stepping up as Al after Alexander injured his shoulder. On the surface, Stokes' numbers were okay for a first-round corner as he finished the year with 14 passes defensed and one interception. However, in the age of analytics, these numbers hardly do Stokes justice. According to Pro Football Focus, Stokes ranked first among rookie corners in completion rate and pass breakups among guys who played at least 300 snaps. He was set second to Patrick Sertan in NFL passer rating. Stokes wasn't just impressive among rookies either. PFF recently tweeted out that Stokes had an open target rate of 24%, which ranked first among corners in 2021. Four-time Pro Bowler Marshawn Lattimore was second at 24.5%, putting Stokes in elite company. Now, I've never looked at that because I don't have that statistic anywhere. Open target rate, I'd love to get my hands on it. Um, 
what I'd love to do is just sort by that to see if you have, you know, a, a good ranking of, of corners, just to show the relevance of the stat. But it's hard to believe that that is an insignificant stat. <laughs> it basically means he is one of the stickiest corners in football already. Guys were just not open. Now, unfortunately, it's sort of a weak link position. You know, if you, you can cover a guy, you know, 24% means one in four. One in four times the guy's open. If the guy's open one in four times, the pass is completed, you had a really bad day, even though you had, you know, by open target rate, a, uh, you know, fantastic statistical game. But at the very least, it's a fantastic foundation to, to build on, to come right out of Georgia, right into the NFL, and be one of the hardest corners to get away from. And it makes sense. He's a big, long you know, he's got long arms, he's a strong corner, and he's got makeup speed. So that your ability to get away from this guy is going to be really tough. He's going to press you up at the line, he's going to push you around, he's going to be physical. And again, if you happen to get a step away from him, he's going to catch up by the time the ball gets there. But you still have to be able to put it together. And it sounds like he more or less did that. But the other thing I really like about that is, you know, these are the kinds of things where, you know, we don't have as many good good stats for corners as we do necessarily for let's say, pass rushers. There are stats, but there's it, it's just difficult to... The point is, with Rashawn Gary, when I looked at it, his grades weren't great. The cumulative numbers weren't there, but I still was able to look at things like pass rush rate and say, this guy's actually having a good year. You just got to trust me. It doesn't look like it. He had a good year. If he gets more opportunities and he kind of refines, you know, what he does a little bit and as far as consistency, he's going to be really, really good. And I don't know which cornerback stats are, are best to look at for those kinds of things, but I know that there's a good chance that Stokes hit those, right? There might be inconsistency there. The grades might not be there yet because, again, PFF grades largely come down to consistency, but the talent is shining through. And even Jair went through this. Jair, in his first two years, you saw the flashes. You knew that something was there. But there were also just those, ah, come on, man. You love him, you love him, you love him, you hate him. You love him, you love him, you hate him. You love him, you hate him, you love him, you love him, you hate him, you know? And then when he was in his dominant season, there was no hate. The guy was just everywhere. He broke up everything. He did everything. I mean, it was just, it was about consistency. Anyways, I also found this interesting little tidbit. Mercedes Lewis wants to break the NFL record for most seasons played by a tight end. Um, sounds like the record currently sits at 17. This is year 17 for Mr. Mercedes Lewis, meaning he plans to play next year so that he can break it, and kind of sounds like after that he wants to be done. Article by David Smith says, Packers tight end Mercedes Lewis is headed into his 17th NFL season, and that has him setting his sights on his own place in NFL history. Only two tight ends have played 17 seasons, Tony Gonzalez and Jason Witten. No tight end has ever played 18 seasons, and that's something Lewis wants to do. Quote, this year I'll tie that record. It would be great to break it, and then I would consider, okay, I've done that. 18 is kind of bizarre, especially at the tight end position. So I I don't know exactly what he's saying, but it's (laughs) sounded to me like, all right, Maybe he just means, okay, I did that great, check that off the list, but it's not like he's just kind of getting that record and going to book it. Lewis played his first 12 seasons with the Jacksonville Jaguars, is now headed to his fifth season with Green Bay. Once he plays this season, he'll be um, he'll break out of a tie with Antonio Gates, Pete Metzelars, and Jackie Smith, all of whom played tight end for 16 seasons. In addition to playing at least two more seasons, the 38-year-old Lewis says his other goal is winning a Super Bowl, so that makes sense. It reminds me of another stat that I saw that I looked up, and you're going to have to forgive me if I told you this already, because 
I know I wanted to talk about it, and then I can't remember if I did, but I'm pretty sure I didn't. However, if you look at the oldest Green Bay Packers to catch a touchdown pass are Wesley Walls and Donald Driver. Um, Both of them did it at the age of 37 years old. Wesley Walls was 37 and 299 days, which is the official oldest at this particular point in time. That was in 2003. Wesley Walls was a Packers tight end. Donald Driver, 37 years old, 269 days old. Mercedes Lewis did not catch a single touchdown last year, so he's not on this list. However, he turned 38 like a month ago. So if he catches a single touchdown this year, he will be the oldest Green Bay Packer to ever catch a touchdown pass. In fact, he'll be the oldest to catch a single pass as a Green Bay Packer. The oldest reception, Wesley Walls, 37 years old, 319 days. 37 years, 319 days old. So Mercedes Lewis's first reception will break the record for oldest reception by a Green Bay Packer. And obviously that goes for touchdown as well. So ideally... If he only catches one pass this year, let it be a touchdown. And if he does go on to play next year um, in NFL history, you've got 77 players to ever record a single reception at 39 years or older, and 90% of those receptions are Jerry Rice. One of them actually is a Green Bay Packer, and it's Brett Favre. Actually, hilariously enough, the oldest non-Jerry Rice to ever catch a pass is Brett Favre. At f- at, he just turned 40. He was 40 years and a day old. He was a Viking at the time, but still, it's a funny stat. But Jerry Rice was catching passes, uh, let's see, the oldest reception, 42 years and 67 days old, which is just remarkable. Um, I wanted to elaborate a little bit on some of the stats from yesterday because I thought it was pretty interesting, especially just, you know, the more I delve into some of these fun little stats, especially in regard to receivers, the more I feel like if somebody gave me the task of saying, I want you to dig through these stats, and I want you to prove that Sterling Sharp was the best receiver the Packers have ever had ahead of Devontae. I would have a really hard time doing it. I really would. And I know not all stats are the most important stats, and there's different things and all that. I'm not trying to debate with you. I'm just saying when you look at these stats and just see how dominant Devontae is just at the top, you know, you sort by these things, and it's just Devontae, 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 Devontae. You can say different era and all that, I, I whatever. I'm, again, that's it's not really my goal. I'm just saying it's really hard to not put Devontae at the top of the pile. But I was looking at receptions, and yesterday, if you haven't listened, you can go back and listen to it, but um, looked at receivers that have had 10 or more receptions in a game. And again, the second and third most was seven. Devontae had 19 games with 10 or more receptions, but... I was just looking at 10 or more. There's another question there. Who has had the most receptions? There have been 63 games with 10 receptions or more. There have only been 31 with 11 or more, 11 with 12 or more. If we start from there, so I don't have to read through 30, it's Vince Workman, Ken Payne, Jordy Nelson, Devontae Adams, Devontae Adams for 12. At 13, you got Don Hudson, Devontae Adams, Devontae Adams, Devontae Adams. In games with 14 receptions, you have Don Hudson and Devontae Adams. And, and again, the, the bigger issue here, if we're talking about era, is that the other guy that's super dominant is Don Hudson. <laughs> so it's hard to, to give Sterling Sharp a pass because he played in the 90s, yet Don Hudson was doing it in the 40s. And, and yeah, Don Hudson's a super freak, and maybe that's why he should be on top of the pile, because when you adjust for era, this is insane. But again, even if you go down 
in the 11s. It's Devontae, 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 Don Beebe, Robert Brooks, Randall Cobb, Randall Cobb, Donald Driver, Donald Driver, da-da-da-da-da, whatever. But, you know, again, you go down to 10, Devontae, 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 Devontae. you got to get through 5, 6 Devontae's before you get to the other guys, 1 or 2. In fact, when you look at 10 reception games, it's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 of them. 10, 10 reception games. Driver had 5. Sharp did have six, but again, just the the sheer dominance of this guy, and and it just seems like every stat I pull up, it's just it's just Devante, it's just it's a Devante stat, and then you look at it and you say, okay, well, what about targets? Because you know we're kind of saying the same thing here with receptions, but targets are just kind of a quarterback's tendency to throw at you. Number one is Devante with 21 targets. Number two is Devontae with 18 targets. Number three is Devontae with 18 targets. You've also got Freeman twice and Jordy once with 18. Uh, you got Devontae again at 17. Devontae had one, two, three, four, five, six games with 16 targets. And there's other guys that have, have you know, Donald Driver, three games at 17. Jordy had three games at 16. Robert Brooks had three games at 15. I mean, there, there's other guys that had multiple big target games. But the fact is, nobody had quite the amount that Devontae did, and the fact of the matter is, nobody cracked 20 except Devontae. 20, November 15th, 2015 against Detroit, Devontae Adams, 21 targets. Just just the amount of leaning on the guy. And again, maybe that's to our detriment. Maybe that is somewhat of a negative to the the offense, too much dependency on Devontae. But again, when you try to look back over the history and, and look at a guy that the offense just relied on so heavily. You know, and, and even if you try to adjust for era, well, the the point of the older eras is that you didn't rely on wide receivers as much. That's the point. If you're asking who was the most relied upon wide receiver, you're not going to pick a wide receiver that played in an era where running the ball was the most important thing because obviously we're not relying on the wide receiver so much. Maybe that's unfair to the talent of the wide receiver, but again, I'm not asking that question. I'm asking the question of who is the most depended upon, who is the most relied upon, who is the most, you know, valuable, I guess, which again is still a different question than talented. You could be the most talented pizza maker in the entire world, but if you're at, in a bakery, you might not be the most valuable in that bakery. So we're trying to compare, you know, Don Hudson as a pizzaiolo, whatever it's called, at a bakery, and Devontae Adams as a pizza maker in a pizzeria. Obviously, Devontae is going to be more valuable to the pizzeria. But that's that's really just what I'm illustrating here, is just the absolute ridiculous value that he brought compared to any other wide receiver the Packers have ever had. And as far as his um, 21 targets or whatever the case may be, there were only 52 times in all of NFL history where a wide receiver was targeted 20 or more times. Only 25 times in NFL history that a receiver was targeted 21 times, which is what Devontae was. Only 11 times was a person targeted more than Devontae was in 2015 against Detroit. Jason Witten, Andre Risen, Chris Penn, T.O., Vincent Jackson, there you go, DeAndre Hopkins, Roddy White, Antonio Brown, Michael Irvin, Chris Chambers, and Brandon Marshall leads the pack at 28 targets against Indy in 2009. By the way, interestingly enough, if we wanted to elaborate a little bit on um, whether or not it's it's a good thing or a bad thing to be so dependent on a wide receiver, these are 
really, really landmark games, and I'm just looking at the win-loss records, these are mostly losses. In fact, the game with Devante um, against Detroit was a loss, 16-18. to 18. Targeted 21 times, we only got 16 points. I mean, just combing through the, if we even go all the way down to the 20 targets or more. Um, and again, we're talking elite wide receivers, primarily, getting really top tier, you know, record breaking type games. You got loss, 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 win, loss, win, win, loss, win, loss, loss, win, loss, loss, win, loss, loss, win, 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 loss, loss, win, loss, 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 tie, loss, loss, win, loss, win. Loss, loss, win, loss, loss, win, loss, 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 win, loss, 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 win, loss, win, loss. So clearly there were more losses than wins. And again, you would expect it to be the other way around because we're talking about, again, top-tier wide receivers having record-breaking games. But it's actually not all that surprising. When are those situations when you're leaning so heavily on that one wide receiver when nothing else is working? Or when, th- when the chips are down that badly that you have nothing else to go. But even if you just look at the scores, the scores are so low. These aren't shootouts. These are desperation. Brandon Marshall targeted 28 times. They scored 16 points, 9 points, 21 points, 23 points. Even the T.O. game that they won against Chicago, they won 17-0. to 22 targets, they only scored 17 points. 15, 24, 24, 16, 26. Uh, there is the Troy Brown game from 2002, 41-38. Uh, 17, 27, 24, 20. You've got a 7 to 7 tie. Michael Westbrook, 21 targets, and the game was tied 7 to 7. Washington against the Giants. So there's probably a deeper study to be done here, but um, there just seems to be a negative correlation to, you know, this may just come off as being super obvious, but an over reliance on a wide receiver correlates to bad games and low scores. And and that might be chicken in the egg, you know, or cart before the horse, however you want to put it, you know, where the, the game goes bad first, and then you rely on a wide receiver too much. But I think we've seen it the other way also, where you, when you strip away that one wide receiver and you force the quarterback to do the scary thing, the hard thing, and to work within the system and, and trust the system and trust these other guys that you don't trust as much, good things tend to happen. Torrey Holt targeted 20 times. They lost 10 to 30. Cooper Cup in 2020 was targeted 20 times. They lost 17 to 28. So, anyways, um, I'm really running out of time here. I got to get going. So, you folks have yourselves a wonderful day. I will talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one. Bye bye. <laughs>